0: Thank you. Please take with me your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah in chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We're doing a a little series, a mini-series just at the moment, on the last verses of Isaiah 53, uh, which is uh, really in anticipation of Easter, looking forward to uh, remembering the Lord's death and resurrection. And these last verses... What I call the deep end of Isaiah 53. If you think of Isaiah 53 as like a swimming pool, uh, the beginning of the chapter is like the shallow end. Anybody can understand the beginning of Isaiah 53, but when you come to the end of it, you really scratch your head at the meaning of some of these words. They're amazing, but uh, you, you think, what, what, what exactly does it mean? And so we're going into the deep end to try and understand it. And that's why these passages we're looking at, we're just taking little bite sizes, but there's so much in each one. uh, We're going to need the Lord's help uh, to understand it all. So let's have a look tonight at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11 and into the beginning of verse 12. It says, he, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ by prophecy, he shall see the labor of his soul And be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. I uh, sometimes uh, like reading in the newspaper the answers to correspondence question page where people send in questions and uh, it's open then to experts to be able to send in the answers and one of the questions that was asked some time back was in the days of unlimited rounds what was the longest boxing match and it was amazing to read the answers Uh, there was one suggestion that there was a boxing match uh, between a man called Jack Jones and another called Patsy Tunney in Cheshire in 1825 that went to 276 rounds in four hours. And uh, that took uh, quite a, uh, a bit of beating. <laughs> but uh, the winner actually was this match between these two men here, a man called Andy Bowen and Jack Burke in 1883, 1893, in Louisiana, at a boxing club in Louisiana, uh, the Olympic uh, Southern belt, uh for America, they had a fight that lasted seven hours and 19 minutes. And actually, one of the fighters, uh, Jack Burke, he actually broke his hands from fighting while he was in the match. He was hammering away so long, he broke every bone in his hands. And in the end... Uh, it went on past midnight and most of the people went home those who stayed fell asleep and after it got into the early hours of the morning the referee saw both men sat dazed in their corner and said I'm calling it a draw <laughs> but that was how long it went on what a, what a, a long old fight what an amazing fight really uh, in terms of sporting uh, history But none of that is as great as the battle that was fought at Calvary, where the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. And unlike that boxing match I just talked about there, there was a clear victor at Calvary in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a Christos victor, as as, uh, we would say in theology. Christ was the victor. And he won a great battle and great victory, saving souls And uh, pleasing the father in the work of redemption. And Isaiah 53 tells us that in prophecy. Now the amazing thing about Isaiah 53 is although it's prophesying into the future, it's also looking back in hindsight. And you say, how can you do that? Well, in prophecy, you can have prophetic hindsight. You can predict what someone will think looking back on something that hasn't happened yet, (laughs) which is actually what happens in Isaiah 53. You have prophetic hindsight. And this passage uh, deals with the victory of the cross at the end of Isaiah 53 in prophetic hindsight. And it's amazing the insights it gives us into the Lord Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. You know, as Christians, the cross should always be the center of our faith. It should be the centre of our church message. Whatever else we preach, whatever else we uphold, and we have many things we value uh, as as a church who love the word of God and love the things of God. The cross is the message we want to share with the world and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 11, we see the victory of the cross of Christ in three wonderful ways that I want to draw your attention to this evening. The first of those is we see the satisfaction of the Saviour as a result of the cross. Look at verse 11. It says, he shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. Now, what we're talking about here is something Jesus will see in hindsight. It says, he will see. Now, that tells you something actually subtly if you stop and think about it if he's going to see something after the cross what does that tell you about him he's risen from the dead it's, it's subtle but it's there after the cross after he's died the fact it says he will see this tells you he's going to rise from the dead and Isaiah is full of these subtle little prophecies which if you actually uh, uh, read them in hindsight it's just amazing to see how it was all predicted but he shall see the labor of his soul and the word labor there is the word meaning childbirth in the old king james version they used the ver- the word that i love best they used the travail of his soul and that's a word that's used of childbirth in the King James Version in many places. It's used in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 22, for the world groaning in travail, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. It's used in Jeremiah 30, verse 6. And interestingly, in Jeremiah 30, verse 6, it says this, Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child." And that's speaking prophetically of Israel in the the tribulation. But there is actually an answer to that question. Has there ever been a man who has been in travail in labor with child? And the answer to that is yes. Spiritually speaking. It was the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He was in travail on the cross. He was Having children on the cross he was bearing children in fact this is something he himself said to his disciples in the upper room before going to the cross in in John chapter sixteen and verse thirty he tried to comfort them uh, about his going away and and, and the, the what they the grief of, of Calvary and what they would see and what he was going to go through and he said this in john sixteen twenty one a woman when she is in labor has sorrow because her hour has come but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. But he used that imagery of childbirth to describe his going to the cross, and then afterwards, the joy of seeing his children. It's a a beautiful picture of Calvary and it really magnifies the sufferings of Christ and the fruit that would follow. Those of you who have had children or have been with a lady in childbirth, you know what travail means. It means agony. You know, we, we we see all these sporting heroes uh, who, sorry Justin, I'm not trying to give you nightmares, <laughs> it's too late now girl. <laughs> but you see all these sporting heroes, you know, and uh, they, they, they come limping off the rugby pitch or whatever, and the poor guy, he's going to be out for the rest of the season. Let me tell you something, if a, woman, if a man went through what a woman goes through to have a baby, he'd be out forever. <laughs> But she goes home and she gets on with life looking after the little one. It's an amazing achievement. But it's a huge huge thing. Travail. And this is what the, the cross of Calvary is described as. The travail. The travail of his soul. Of his soul. Not just of his body, but his soul. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just his body he suffered in. It was in his soul. As Spurgeon said, the soul of his sufferings were his soul sufferings. And we talked about that last time, how the grief of sin and the judgment of God was all poured out on Christ. And he was in that suffering of the judgment of God as he was there on the cross. But he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And what this is talking about is the satisfaction of the Lord Jesus Christ with his work on the cross after he has done it. And it's uh, an interesting thing because this last stanza of Isaiah 53 has talked about the satisfaction of the Father as we sung earlier on in that hymn about God's judgment being satisfied back in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, and it, it talked about his satisfaction there in, in uh, his law and his demands being met so he could rescue the sinner. Well here the satisfaction is of the saviour when he sees the travail of his soul. This is what uh, the book of Hebrews talked about in Hebrews 12 verse 3. When it talked about the, for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, he was looking forward to the people he is dying for to be with him in heaven so that he could be blessed with having his people with him. And here on the other side of the cross, he sees the travail of his soul and he's satisfied. You know, there's been some amazing mothers uh, in the newspaper. This dear lady, uh, she was told that she couldn't have children and uh, they went to see if they could find some donors of eggs so that they could have fertility treatment. And while they were were trying to find a donor, she got pregnant. Amazing. And she had twins. And then she had another set of twins in the same year. Four kids in one year when she had just been told she couldn't have children. Isn't that amazing? That was one thing that happened to her. I mean, having four kids, I mean, we have two kids, okay? Four kids to me, I feel like an amateur Alright? But that's nothing. Alright? This lady in America was what's called an octomom. She had eight children by IV- IVF. <laughs> Justin, you know, I'm trying to make you feel good here, girl. <laughs> Alright? I mean, and, and she now has a sum total of 14 children. Single mum. By IVF. So, phew, amazing. But, I, I mean... Even compared to her, these people have done even better. Noel and Sue, who live in this country over a number of years, have now had, from their one marriage, 20 children. That's a lot of kids, isn't it? All I can tell you is, knowing how long it takes us to get out of the house to go anywhere. <laughs> I cannot imagine what it was like in their house with all those kids at home all growing up. I mean, it must have been a nightmare. But what an amazing thing for a mother to look on and see her children like that. But do you know what? That's nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus sees when he sees the travail of his soul. He is satisfied. Now, I want to ask you this question. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, who bore the sins of the world in his sinless body and in his soul on the cross, how much is it going to take to satisfy him? Is he going to be satisfied with two or three or four or 20? No i tell you what, Revelation 7 tells us that in heaven there's a number around the throne that no man can number. I mean, God knows the number. There's a full number of the Gentiles. God knows he can do the Mass, but no man can number it. So many. And Jesus is going to look at his, his souls, what he poured out for on the cross, and he is going to be satisfied. Like Rachel, who died in childbirth, Outside of Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death, he gave birth by the travail of his soul to many, many, many millions. Down the years of history, until this very day. Who was the first one Jesus saw as the travail of his soul? Anyone guess? The thief on the cross. The first one. In fact, he saw him in childbirth, as it were, on the cross. In the travail of his soul, what an encouragement to himself as he was dying there. Today you will be with me in paradise. Who will be the last one gathered in? Will it be someone here tonight? Maybe. Maybe someone tonight will be added to that number. And their name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Lord Jesus will spend eternity reading through those names, looking at his children, and be satisfied. With the work of the cross. That's the victory of Calvary. You know I had to include this. Someone sent me this through the week. week, And it so blessed me. A friend of theirs went on holiday to Israel. And bought them home a ceramic. uh, I think a ceramic or a a, a beautiful uh, model of a pomegranate. And uh, because their boss wasn't a Christian, they wanted to look this up and and learn about it. And so they looked up about the pomegranate and they found a beautiful gospel message. you know the pomegranate is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus? It's the fruit that has the crown on it. Can you see that? He has the crown. And the red inside is called the blood. That is actually what it's called. And you have to cut the flesh to get to the blood. And in the blood is all the seed. What a gospel picture. Isn't that fantastic? You'll remember that now. A person said to me uh, in the, in the, when they sent it, they said, I thought of the sermon last time when, 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 when I saw this. And I thought, I've got to share that. Because that's a picture of what we're talking about tonight. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. What a victory for the Lord of glory. What a tremendous, tremendous victory. The second part of the victory is not only in the satisfaction of the saviour, but also in the justification of the sinner. And this is the next part of verse 11. It says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Now, what does this mean? By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Well, we're talking here about justification, and justification is the work of salvation. It's another way of talking about being saved, is to be justified. One simple way of of explaining this is this, to say that when you're justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Jesus makes me right with God, and it's just as if I'd never sinned. Now, that's just a little bit of what it really means. There's actually two parts to the work of justification. Uh, it's, It's something taken away and it's something added, if I can put it like that. Something added is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing that's taken away is our sin. And both these things are spoken of here in the remaining part of verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Let's deal with the the added bit first of all. My righteous servant shall justify many. How are we justified? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ justifies us by giving us His righteousness. Now you notice he's called here my righteous servant. And that's because the Lord Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord. And the servant aspect emphasizes his humanity. Uh, he's not called the son of God in this passage, although he is the son of God, but he's the servant of the Lord, the one who in his human body came to do God's will. And this is what the Lord Jesus himself said that he came to do in Mark 10 verse 45, to serve uh, to serve not only others, but to serve his father. And his righteous servant there is, is an interesting phrase in Hebrew, it's, it breaks the rules of Hebrew. Because what it does is it puts the righteousness before the servant. Now normally it should be the the thing first and then the the description afterwards. There's only one time when you put it the other way around, according to what I've read uh, in the commentaries. And that is if this level, if this is the ultimate uh, manifestation of a thing. So when we're talking about my righteous servant, it's saying... There has never been anybody as righteous as this one. It's not like he's as good as the others. There's never been anyone as righteous as this one. And God calls Jesus my righteous servant and says he will justify many. Now how does he do it? It says here, uh, he would justify them. Let me explain justification for you in a simple way. My kids always cringe at me doing this. Uh, apologize now for uh, what I'm going to get as grief later. But when they were growing up, we used to have sticker charts. Okay? You, you, this is good parenting. All right? you, you've got to not only discipline, you've also got to give a few rewards. Okay? And so what we did was we had sticker charts for them. And uh, every time they did something good, they would get a sticker on the chart. You know, they they did well at school uh, or, you know, good behaviour, got good rewards and so on. When they filled their sticker chart up, then there was a prize at the end. Go and see a film of their choice. Go and have a McDonald's. Go and see Granny and Granda. Whatever it was they wanted to do at the end, if they got their sticker chart full, they would get the prize. Now I want you to imagine, right, okay, and you might have to use your imagination for this, but I want you to imagine Samuel's sticker chart is full and Hannah's sticker chart is empty. And he's been such a good boy, His the last sticker has been put on, and he now is worthy of receiving the prize. But he peels off all his stickers off his chart and he puts them on Hannah's chart. So she gets the prize. Well, that's justification. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you and me. He took his righteousness and he put it on our account, your account. And what that means is that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of the Lord Jesus on our account and can find no fault. No fault at all. That's an amazing thing. This is the other side of the gospel that you hardly ever hear. If you asked a Sunday school child, why did the Lord Jesus Christ have to come into the world? They say, I want to die on the cross. That's great, wonderful. So in that case, then why didn't the Lord Jesus come down to earth as a 33-year-old man and just go straight to the cross and get it over and done with? Why did he live 33 years first? Because for 33 years, he was weaving a robe of spotless righteousness for you to wear. By his perfect obedience to God's law. In him was no sin. There was nothing anybody could point at him. And when he went to the cross. He didn't have to pay for his sins. He paid for yours. And his righteousness was put to your account. And the beautiful thing for us as believers means this. That we are guaranteed acceptance with God. Because of the righteousness of Christ. That is imputed put on our account to us because of the lord jesus my favorite hymn on this is one by august top lady which says this i hear the accuser roar you know who the accuser is don't you it's the devil he comes to point his finger at you because of all the things you've done wrong and a top lady said this i hear the accuser roar of ills that i have done i know them all and thousands more Jehovah findeth none. I want to weep when I read that. God looks at me with all my wretchedness. And he does not see one of my sins. Because the righteous servant has justified me. But here's the mystery in this verse. It says by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many. What does the knowledge bit mean? Well, there's, there's two or three ways in which this can be understood, and this is where it gets a little bit deep, so I apologise if I lose anyone, I'll bring you back in a minute. There's three explanations for this, and you can choose which one you think is the right one. One explanation is that his knowledge here is not head knowledge like uh, general knowledge or something like that, it's experiential knowledge. That's how many of the paraphrases translate this particular Bible verse. For instance, the New Living Translation says, and because of what he has experienced, they counted righteous. Uh, the message, which is a, a translation I strongly recommend you do not use, because I don't think it's sound, but that's, this is how it explains it. It says, through what he experienced, he will make many righteous ones. And that's how many people uh, see it, is that this, ex- this knowledge here is experiential knowledge of what Christ experienced on the cross. By that means, he makes us uh, righteous. The second explanation is that it is the knowledge of Christ that justifies us. This is how many of the reformers, like John Calvin, understood this passage And he argued that it's the knowledge of Christ through the preaching of the gospel. When we hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, we are made righteous as we trust in Christ. And we act on the knowledge of the gospel given. The third way is the way that I lean on. And it is the knowledge that the Lord Jesus had of those he was dying to save. He said in John chapter 10, I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. So it's both ways. <laughs> but he said, I know my sheep. In Romans chapter 8 and verse uh, twenty-eight, and, sorry, 29 and 30, it starts off by talking about God's foreknowledge, for whom he foreknew. And then it goes on through the golden chain, talking about the different things God does. And it says, for those he foreknew, he also justified. And his knowledge is that he knew who he was dying for. So take those three and you choose the one that you think is the one that best explains it, but it's by his knowledge his righteous servant will justify many. The point is this, justification for the sinner was a part of the victory of Calvary and that's what was added. What was taken away was the last part, for he shall bear their iniquities. And this is the part where Jesus does what we most commonly understand about the cross is that he removes our sins. He bears our iniquities. Now, there's a very Jewish picture here that the Jewish readers would have understood. And that is the image of the scapegoat. You know, every year we have Christmas and it's one of our festivals that come around uh, every year. Uh, But the Jewish people have seven festivals. And one of their festivals is called the most holy day of the year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's actually called a feast, but actually it's a fast. <laughs> they, they, they fast on that day and they pray for repentance. And in the history of the temple, one of the parts of the uh, seeking the redemption and the saving work of, uh, of Israel from God's punishment was the scapegoat. And they had lots that they used to cast for the goats. And the lot that was, came up for the scapegoat was called Azazel. And this goat was not going to be sacrificed on the altar. This goat was going to be driven away into the wilderness and pushed over a cliff. And it would bear the judgment on its body and bear away the sins of Israel. And what the priest would do is he would take a ribbon and he would tie two ribbons, two red ribbons. He would tie one around the horn of this goat and the other one he'd tie on the door of the temple. And then they would drive away the scapegoat. Do you know how they did it? They pulled out its hair. Have you ever had your hair pulled out? Do you know what you want to do when someone pulls your hair out? Sorry, Alan, I'm trying not to look at you. But you want to get away from that person. So the scapegoat starts pulling away and going away. And as they take the scapegoat away, they pull its hair as it goes. And the people all shout. They wave sticks and wave arms and they say, Away with him! Away with him! Does that remind you of anything? What did they shout when Jesus was in in the Praetorium of Pontius Pilate? Away with him! And they pulled out his beard, as it says in Isaiah 50. He was the scapegoat for you and me. And he was bearing away our iniquities. You know, uh, the psalm says that he takes away our sins as far as the east is from the west. He's borne them away so they will never come back to us. I love what Spurgeon said. A thing cannot be in two places at once. If your sins are on Jesus, they can't be on you as well. So if he's borne away our iniquities... They are gone. You are justified and your iniquities have been taken away. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but that fills me with so much relief and so much thankfulness to God for his saving work and mercy. And when we come to communion in the moment, you know what, I'm going to be thinking of that. I'll say, thank you, Jesus. I thank you for saving me and bearing away my iniquities. There's justification for the sinner in the work of calvary well that's a part of the victory so we can stand right before god and come to him and i want to say if you don't know christ as your savior yet your sins are still on you you're not justified you're condemned but if you ask the lord to save you in half a tick of a clock your sins will be gone they'll be gone immediately it doesn't take process of time over a long time for your sins to pass away from Christ, from you to Christ, they'll be gone. You'll be made righteous and ready to meet God straight away. It's the glory of the gospel. Some people say it's too good to be true. That's that's why it's called good news, this gospel. Saving work of the Lord. The final part here is the remuneration of the sufferer. Do you know what? I read an interesting thing uh, in the newspaper that in New England in in, uh, in North America Canada area they were having a a real lot of problems with the state sewers and so they employed some people to go down and clean through the sewers so that everything would work better now can you imagine what an awful job and they, they said the pay is not fantastic it's not the best job but there's one perk anything of any value you find down there you are allowed to keep. Do you know those boys came out with diamond rings? They came out with wristwatches. All sorts of stuff they found down there. Soon people caught an on. There was a lot of good stuff down there. <laughs> and they were getting remuneration for a horrible job. I want to tell you, when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, afterwards, his victory is seen in the reward he was given. Afterwards, and this is what verse 12 says it says, Therefore, and this is God the Father speaking, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. Now, what this is saying is that the Lord Jesus will receive a reward, a great reward, like a king has a reward from a battle and a victory. That's what it means by the great. I will divide him a portion with the great. But I love the next bit. It says, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong or with the many. Now, the beautiful thing about this is Christ is going to receive great heavenly rewards for his victory on the cross. But as one reformer said this, Christ cannot be happy with those rewards unless he shares them with us. That just blows me away. He divides it with the many. And there are victories, what Paul called the unsearchable riches of Christ, which came as a result of his work on the cross, which he is sharing with his people now and will share with them in the future. Shall I just tell you quickly what you've got to look forward to? This is just the ones I can think of very briefly. Number one. We have the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit as a result of the cross? Yes, exactly. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You know, the Lord Jesus said that if anybody came to him, they would have streams and rivers of living water flowing through him. But John 7.39 says that would not be fulfilled until after he died. His cross secured the outpouring of the Holy Spirit like the struck rock that Moses struck. And then the water flowed. The Holy Spirit flows from Christ's death on the cross And Christ has the Holy Spirit, according to Isaiah 11, verse 2, the sevenfold spirit, and he shares the spirit with us. And that's a a blessing which you cannot put a price on. The help he gives to live the Christian life and to know the Lord in a real way. Second blessing I can tell you about is the kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he went back to heaven, do you want to know what it was like when he went back to heaven? Read Daniel chapter 7 when you get home. Because in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. And he says, I saw the ancient of days sat on his throne. That's God the Father. And one approached the throne and a kingdom was given to him. Who was that? That was the Lord Jesus Christ after he ascended up into glory. He received a kingdom. He said that in Luke 19 in his parable, the parable of the miners. He said about a man who was going away to receive a kingdom. And he's not got that kingdom only for himself. Daniel 7 goes on and says he shares that kingdom with the saints. It's the kingdom of the saints. And Luke 12, Jesus said, My father's bestowed a kingdom on you. He's dividing the spoil with the strong. It's not just his kingdom. It's the kingdom of the saints. The kingdom of God. We're in his kingdom. And it gets even bigger than this. Do you realise the Lord Jesus Christ has received a throne in glory? And I would say, if I heard another preacher say this, blasphemer. And so I'm not going to tell you, I'm going to read it to you from the Bible so you know I'm not blaspheming. These are the words of Jesus. What he says he's going to share with his people, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, and I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. In terms of God, it doesn't get bigger than sitting on God's throne. But Jesus says, if you become mine, you're going to sit with me on my throne. He said that, that's there. I didn't say that. He said it. He's sharing his spoils with the strong. And I tell you what, there's a lot more of this stuff in here. It's amazing. What an amazing victory at Calvary has been given. And how we need to give the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ For his saving work. Ayrton Senna, the racing car driver who was killed back in uh, the 1990s, you remember with that terrible crash, he he pushed himself on. He said, Winning is like a drug. I cannot justify in any circumstance coming second or third. And spiritually speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ would say the same. Winning was the only thing he was going to do at Calvary, he didn't come second. He didn't come third. He's Christos victor. He's the winner. And he has the proof of it here in Isaiah 53 to show us. May you be encouraged by these things and glory in the cross tonight. Do you realize just as I close, I've got to share this because it's just suddenly come back to me. This is all the reversal of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, Eve was told she would bear children with travail. Christ had his children in travail on the cross. When they fell in the Garden of Eden, how did they fall? They fell as a result of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The cross is the tree of knowledge that now justifies God's people who put their trust in Christ. And in Adam, we lost all the blessings, but in Christ we receive all the spoil. Praise his name. Amen. Amen.